This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with my good friend and frequent guest, and actually one of my earliest guests, Larry Allen. Larry, welcome back to the show, man. Mark, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. So, Larry, we're we're going to talk about something that we talk about at least once a year to kick off this show: continuing resolution. One one of my favorite things. So, right. What what the hell's going on? Well, Mark, this is a really unusual year in that the CR is hanging around for a lot longer than it usually does. Uh, over the last couple of years. We've had continuing resolutions, but they've been out the door pretty much by the end of the calendar year, and agencies have enjoyed having full appropriations from about January to the end of the fiscal year at the end of September. This year, here we are, taping this in the dead of winter, uh, some two months after Christmas, and we're still operating under a continuing resolution. We will be until at least March 11th. The good news, to the extent that there is any good news in this, is that it looks like Congress is actually going to pass final appropriations in the middle of March and that uh, agencies will have appropriated dollars that they can spend on new projects, probably starting in the middle of April, Mark. It takes about a month, maybe five weeks after Congress passes the bill before each individual office gets its spending account for the year. Uh, But still, we're talking about uh, middle of April to the end of September. That's a severely truncated fiscal year. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a variety of issues here, but let's start with the issues for the agencies. What kind of problems does this queue up for our buddies inside? Many problems, Mark. Probably the biggest ones that get the most attention. This really impacts IT modernization. Most appropriated dollars pay for modernization uh, in the IT world. Uh, You've got that IT fund that is seed money for projects, but that pales in size to individual agency budgets dedicated to upgrading their IT infrastructure. Uh, They can't really spend on updating their IT infrastructure right now. They have to wait for that appropriated money to come in, in most cases. So that really slows things down. Uh, It also impacts uh, things like military training, spare parts, military uh, readiness. So a severely delayed continuing resolution, severely delayed appropriations, rather, really have an impact on Uh, the ability of planes to fly and ships to sail and guns to shoot. So that's uh, an issue uh, as well. From a strict agency management standpoint, keeping the lights on for over half the year is something that experienced managers can do, but it doesn't really allow them to work on any of their major management initiatives. 
to make any major reforms that require uh, appropriated dollars and the authority to do something different. So it's a difficult way to run a government when you're running it for six and a half months under a continuing resolution. Okay, so um, can agencies start to approach during the CR, mind you, can they start to approach FedSim or the assisted acquisition shop over a DOI to at least be close to the front of the line for when the money comes out, or do they have to wait? They don't have to wait, Mark. Uh, they can take a certain amount of steps now. And I've reached out to some of the FedSim, the FedSim office, DOI, and some of the GSA regions. They're actually actively engaged with customer agencies right now, uh, a little bit with contractors in the preliminary phase of projects, but they know that they can't move past a certain point until there's actual money to spend. So to the extent that they can do planning, that's what they're doing. Uh, Some agencies have a pretty good idea of what they know they're going to get for specific projects. But again, they can't pull the trigger on those projects until they actually have the money sitting in their account. In addition to people having discussions, though, with the assisted acquisition service world, uh, some of the discussions I've had uh, with that world uh, indicate reality, Mark. And what I mean by that is in the last few years, assisted acquisition groups may cut off uh, certain types of projects relatively early in the fiscal year which they're not doing this year. There's going to be a lot more flexibility to take projects later. Uh, Certainly, uh, smaller projects might be easier to get than larger projects because there's only going to be a limited amount of time and a limited number of resources to get things done, whether it's assisted acquisition or any other type of acquisition. But I think the good news is there's going to be some flexibility with that assisted acquisition front. Uh, It's really an important part of how uh, IT solutions and increasingly professional services are bought. Let's talk about the problems from the vendor side of the fence. You know, I've had a number of people call and say, can we start something new? When is the money freed up? What's going on? Uh, So answer that question for them. Well, I've talked to a number of companies recently, Mark, and they're telling me that they're getting uh, RFIs. RFIs have read and didn't really slow down very much. Of course, that's not actual business, but it's in the acquisition planning phase, which is a good sign. Some are actually getting draft RFPs and RFQs out. And of course, there is business that's being done. You can keep a project going that you already started under a CR So it's not like the government's dead in the water, not doing anything. It's just doing what it was doing last year and not much new aside from that. So from contractors, they are out talking with their customers. They're out doing the preliminary work that they can do. They're helping in scoping acquisitions. They're helping uh, in terms of uh, providing information that customer agencies have asked for in terms of what the current technologies uh, market looks like, things of that nature, all getting prepared. So, you know, that last mile that actually is the business part can be done when the money hits the account. Okay. So uh, kind of a related question. Are feds actually physically meeting 
with vendors? Are they attending events? Because I heard that the FCOS show was a huge success. Tons of people from both sides of the fence. We're starting to see that a little bit, Mark. It's really agency dependent, and I think it's also somewhat dependent on uh, the comfort level with a uh, customer agency has with a contractor. So if there's been a standing relationship, it's probably a little easier to have that in-person discussion. Uh, We know that federal agencies are coming back to work, starting to come back to work in the Washington, D.C. area over the next several months, uh, at least on a part-time basis. So people are going to be getting out from behind their video screens and actually going in uh, to the office. Uh, Whether or not that means contractors that don't work on site can come in is another story. But if you know where your customers are, then there's always a coffee shop nearby. That's what I tell my clients. FCA West, as you said, I think was a surprise success because of the number of people that turned out. Uh, People are ready, Mark. People are past ready to go out and resume those in-person discussions, those water cooler talks, the meeting that happens before and after the meeting, uh, you know, the discussions that happen while you're not on the Zoom call. uh, Those are things that are really important in terms of not just relationship building, but in actually thinking, oh, you know, I forgot to talk about this during the time we were on Zoom. I'd like to talk about it now. You can do that when you're in person. So I think we're slowly starting to see more of that happen. I'm certainly advocating for that uh, wherever it's possible. Uh, I think there's a big benefit to getting people together in large and small groups. Agreed. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with my friend Larry Allen of Allen Federal. You can find Larry at allenfederal.com or on LinkedIn. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Larry Allen of Allen Federal. Larry, briefly tell people who you are, what you do, and why they need to contact you. Uh, Mark, first of all, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, Allen Federal Business Partners helps companies of all sizes to sustain their government business, whether it's a strategic business plan, whether it's market research. And, of course, Mark, one of my favorite things to do is contract compliance I like to try to keep my clients out of the compliance ditch before they get into it. It's that strategic level business assistance, uh, information gathering, intelligence gathering, uh, and keeping people out of trouble. Those are the services, typical services I provide. And it doesn't really matter what the size of the company is, large, medium, or small. I work with all of them. Uh, I work with companies in a pretty broad spectrum of market segments. And I've got a pretty good track record of helping companies sustain and grow their business. Uh, I have a good track record of keeping companies uh, who engage me out of trouble. I have a very good track record, unfortunately, of getting companies out of trouble they've already gotten themselves into. Don't let that be you. (laughs) Yeah. And I keep my ear to the ground and I never hear negative things about Larry which is why he's a regular guest on my show and a regular recommendation getter from me. So let's let's talk about one of those flies in the ointment for uh, for the contractor community. 
Uh, we both run across this recently, and I deal with it in a slightly different way. But recruiting qualified personnel once you're, you've won or as you think you are winning, uh, staffing up seems to be increasingly difficult. It is increasingly difficult, Mark, uh, even though a number of government contractors have gone to virtual staffing so that they don't have to draw from the same talent pools uh, centered on specific traditional geographic regions. Sometimes it's just plain tough to find the right people who have the right qualifications. And when you do find those people uh, in a tight labor market, they can command not just a good price, but some other concessions as well. I was talking to a colleague of mine just yesterday who uh, does remote work for a company uh, in Newport News, and they're in Florida, talking about potentially working with a new company that uh, is located in Washington. But my colleague would still be in Florida because they wouldn't require them to come up. Uh, those are the types of things that contractors encounter. How do you get the talent? What are the concessions you need to keep the talent? Uh, and how do you get the talent away from a competitor if you really need it? Yeah, so I've worked with a number of companies on this, and I've had success with a couple of them who have paid attention to the the value that LinkedIn brings to the market. So if you can, you know, carefully explain your corporate culture and leverage the traffic to your individual and company profiles to show the uh, the overall ambiance of the company and the benefits that come along with being employed with that particular company, it makes the recruiting easier. It's never simple, but there's a lot of ways to leverage LinkedIn without doing the recruiter program. The recruiter program on LinkedIn, though, takes everything up several notches. So there's that way. Well, right. And I think you hit on a good point there, Mark, which is if you are one of these contractors that needs to hire people, whether it's you know two or three or a hundred, you need to be in the places where today's workforce are looking for positions. Uh, sometimes that's going to be LinkedIn. Sometimes that's going to be Indeed. Sometimes that's going to be another online site. Today's workforce, particularly the younger workers, you know, they definitely look at their per jobs more as a temporary manifestation of who they are, but they're all, always looking, many of them. But you have to be where they're looking if you're going to attract them. Uh, the traditional ways of uh, attracting talent probably aren't going to work so well because today's talent is very technology-based and very technology-savvy. So, too, do employers have to be. Uh, and you know, you summed it up nicely saying you have to carefully put out your company corporate culture on those sites so that uh, you're accurately portraying what it is you're looking for and the type of person that you're looking for that uh, will fit inside that culture. Let's go on to another one of our favorite topics, that NDAA thing, which kind of went through not too terrible. But there's a couple of issues that you have and you want to point out in there. So let's start with the GSA e-commerce stuff. Sure. So, Mark, what you're referring to is the National Defense Authorization Act, the bill that Congress passed 
I think right before Christmas, if I remember correctly. Uh, the Defense Authorization Act usually puts together, uh, among other things, acquisition policy, not just for DOD, but sometimes for people throughout government. And indeed, uh, GSA uh, was included, as it often is in the Defense Authorization Bill this year, uh, on at least two specific areas. As we know, Mark, GSA stood up an e-marketplace portal, oh, about a year and a half, not quite two years ago, uh, for agencies to use commercial sites, Amazon, Overstock, Fisher Scientific, are the three primes where agencies can go and buy small amounts of commercial items up to the micro purchase threshold uh, and take advantage of the speed and other benefits that these commercial uh, systems have and that many people use in their private lives anyway. Uh, So that's e-marketplace. GSA was always supposed to, Mark, test two other types of e-marketplace platform. One is e-permit, which is software-based, where you have uh, software that sits between a buyer and a seller, and the software helps uh, direct the buyer to the right uh, places where the sellers are. And the other is more of a system. I'm just going to use the generic term for it so it's easy for people to understand. Instead of having an Amazon or Overstock where they're selling items from thousands of different organizations and uh, except for Amazon don't really make a lot of the stuff themselves. Uh, The next option would be something for Staples, a Granger, companies that have their own e-marketplace systems, their own online catalogs uh, where users can log in. So GSA now has to test both of those additional e-marketplace concepts, which they didn't really want to do because they don't have a lot of resources to do it. But Congress said, hey, we told you when we passed the original bill to do it, we we meant it. So I suspect, Mark, that we will see initial RFIs from GSA very shortly on this. I think the first one that will come out would be the e-catalog option uh, for the Grangers and office depots of the world. So we'll have to watch that space. That's going to tie up some GSA resources, and uh, we'll have to see how the agency does with managing three different platforms at once, in addition to the other e-commerce platforms they have. Uh, the other, oh, oh, hold, hold, hold on, let's leave the other one uh, for the next segment. But I want to follow up here. You know, Granger and Staples and Office Depot have been mainstays in the. Uh, micro-purchase arena in government for a while. So when we're talking about micro-purchases at Amazon and Overstock, are we talking about stuff that is on schedule, that is authorized, or are we just talking open market purchases? That's a really good question, Mark. We're really talking about open market purchases. Uh, That's why there's a $10,000 per transaction cap, the cap that government agencies can buy up to that cap without conducting competitions. Uh, or doing extensive price reasonableness assurance. Uh, Some of the items that you can get through these systems may very well be sold through a scheduled contractor, but they're not scheduled transactions on this e-marketplace system. They are open market buys uh, that get credited 
through the prime contractors in this case, as I mentioned, Amazon, Overstock, and Fisher. Yeah, and, you know, Fisher certainly has a long history with government, and a lot of their stuff is on schedule. Uh, you know, the VA schedule and the uh, the regular GSA schedule. But, you know, I'm a huge buyer from Amazon. But I'll tell you, most of the stuff I get there outside of books ain't made here, bud. Um, well, that's been a real challenge. Uh, and there are some requirements for the GSA system, Mark, <laughs> to ensure that agencies are getting what they're ordering more of these uh, online systems are more the business systems than mm-hmm. the commercial ones. Uh, but even in above, over and above the business systems, there are supposed to be some extra supply chain precautions that people are taking, not just to ensure legitimacy, although that's very important, but also to ensure that these prime contractors are integrating with groups like Ability One to make sure Ability One items are continue to be bought. Uh, there are a lot of waivers for acquisition rules under the micro-purchase threshold, Mark, but uh, mandatory source selection is not one of them. So uh, organizations like Ability One and Federal Prison Industries still have to be considered. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about the other part of NDAA that got Larry's attention. You're listening to Amtower Off-Center on the Federal News Network. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off-Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with my friend Larry Allen, and and this whole NDAA thing, there's always stuff in there that gets your attention. But you had one in particular, the other in particular, besides the GSA e-commerce, and that's DOD's reluctance to play in that arena. That's exactly right, Mark. Congress envisioned a pilot test where all three of the commercial e-commerce platforms we discussed in the last segment would be tested government-wide. And a significant amount of the government is defense spending. Well, up until very recently, the Department of Defense had largely sat on the sidelines uh, in terms of participating in GSA's e-marketplace pilot. And there are some reasons for that. We don't need to go into all the weeds here, but... Congress took a look and said, wait a minute, DOD, we implemented this e-commerce program through the defense bill. (laughs) It was always our intention that DOD participate in the pilots. And in fact, we need DOD to participate in the pilots if we're going to get data back that we, Congress, can use to make further decisions on the viability of this acquisition method. So... Congress directed the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment to reach out to GSA and develop a plan through which the Department of Defense and its organizations would participate in these platforms so that Congress, in turn, can get good data on the viability and use and interest in these different e-commerce formats throughout all of government. I think that's a good move uh, as the net effect, Mark, of uh, nudging parts of the Department of Defense into the 21st century uh, and getting them more comfortable with using their purchase cards. Yeah, and, you know, I haven't talked to David Shea, who runs the uh, GSA Charge Card program, the Smart Pay program, in, in way too long, so I have to get him back soon. But, 
more than half the cards out there are in DOD. Hello. You right. Know. Right. And then in the, the fourth estate in the service branches uh, throughout DOD. And you know, I think that the, this congressional directive may be a, a wake up call to the government purchase card program office in DOD. Uh, it says, no, look, you know, this is actually a viable payment option. Uh, it's one that uh, does have uh, good protections uh, in it, and it brings a lot of visibility and a lot of spend analysis capabilities that you might not get from other acquisition and payment methods. Uh, so hopefully this language spurs them into action. Yeah, I mean, that whole level three thing that was implemented early with uh, with a smart pay program gives them a granularity on all of the purchases that, you know, you and I don't see on our credit card bills at home. Right. And I think that there's good oversight on these programs, Mark. The incidences and in the purchase card program of fraud, waste and abuse in the federal government, while they happen and they shouldn't happen on as a percentage basis, they are substantially lower than what we find in the commercial market. Uh, which indicates that there's good training and good controls in place to monitor the use of these cards. People are going out and buying from these commercial sites like Amazon and Overstock in the course of their daily lives, even their government business lives, using the systems that GSA is setting up is going to provide them with better pricing, more security, uh, more spend analysis, it's just going to be a better deal across the board for them. And uh, hopefully they'll get a good look. Cool. All right. So there's four contracts that I, I'd really like to talk to you about. Uh, so I'm going to offer you your choice of which one you want to go with first. Uh, the Emergency Polaris, SP4, the Services Mac, or Alliant 3. We'll do well, one for this segment and then do the other three in the next. Yeah, so if we're going to do that, why don't we talk about CISP4 in this segment? Perfect. Do an all GSA segment. <laughs> there you go. That works. So NITAC running SP4. Uh, NITAC, uh, you know, seven, eight years ago started running on all cylinders and cranked over $5 billion worth of activity when when Rob Cohn was driving that bus. Unfortunately, Rob is no longer with us. I miss him tremendously. Yes, um, yes. But SP4 has been stumbling into the gate, not out of the gate, but into the gate for a while. So what's going on? Well, Mark, the most recent occurrence we've had is that, thankfully, all of the new and updated final offers for CISP4 have now been submitted. It took a little bit longer than uh, NIH might have wanted. There were some problems with the portal. Uh, so they had to extend the due date for updated and renewed offers. Uh, but the reason we've had these significant delays is there have been, I think, close to two dozen protests over the RFP that went out, Mark. And while NIH prevailed on all of those but one, they've had to make at least 13 amendments to that original solicitation to get everything to this point. That's a substantial delay. It's a substantial amount of confusion for industry. And now we're just at the point, Mark, where the uh, offers are going to be evaluated. Hold your breath. 
we all know there's going to be a series of post-award protests that come out <laughs> at the other end because certain uh, contractors didn't get awarded when they thought they should be awarded. And that's going to cause further expense for the contractors and a further delay for NIH. We like the people at NIH. We like the people at NITAC. They're good people. Uh, industry advised NITAC to take a, a different approach from the one they took. Uh, industry's advice early on was to do a, an unrestricted contract for larger businesses and a small business companion contract for the small business community. They elected not to do that. And almost all of the protest activity, Mark, has been in the small business part, and that's held up the implementation of the entire program. Yeah, but I mean, this this is not the first time, well, not, not even just NITAC, that protests on various small business issues have come to the fore. And, you know, part of it is that there's more regulations around being a small than any other component of doing business with the government. Now, if Congress wants to do something with real legitimacy for small business, let's simplify the rules that they have to play by. Oh, I think there's a a lot of that. And, you know, you're spot on, Mark. A lot of the issue has been. Uh, How do we account for small business past performance when a group of small businesses are coming together as a team? How do we show that? You know, are we allowed to show it? What counts? Is it just previous prime contractor business or is it previous subcontractor business that can be counted uh, as well as experience? And, you know, when are you small? When are you not small? It's a mess. Um, Congress tries to do the right thing uh, by promoting small businesses. But, you know, an interesting dichotomy develops, Mark. I was talking to a colleague of mine in an unnamed federal agency not that long ago who said that the SBA as an agency tends to promote the small of the small businesses, the mom and pop organizations, while some other federal agencies, they're just looking at small businesses generally to those could be larger small businesses. And I think one of the mistakes that a lot of people make, Congress and others, is that they tend to think small business and they think there's a uniform definition of what constitutes a small business when really the small business community is as variable and varied as any other market segment. Yeah, and let's not impede their ability to do business with the largest customer in the world. That's that's all I'm asking. Right. And in fact, agencies, NIH is trying to do that. They are trying to be responsive by adding more opportunities for more small businesses. So their heart is in the right place. They're trying to do the right thing. It's just sometimes difficult to do that and work within the FAR regulations that they've been given as their parameters. Yeah, that's true. And when I was consulting with NITAC several years back, I saw that concern, especially for the smalls, firsthand. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Larry and I will come back and talk about Polaris, Services Mac, and GSA Alliant 3. Back in a minute. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Larry Allen. If you think this is an animated discussion, 
you should hear us between tapes. Uh, um, <laughs> so we're going to be talking about three contracts to wrap up this show. The emergence of the long-awaited Polaris vehicle. Larry, is it emerging? Uh, Mark, it should be emerging any day now. DSA has said that it's uh, their intent to get the first two parts of Polaris out in February. That would be the women-owned small business part as well as the general small business uh, portion of the program, uh, leaving HubZone and better-known small businesses for later. Uh, but we haven't seen it yet, at least not up to the time when we're taping this show. So uh, as I told one of my colleagues yesterday, uh, we're going to have to put out sonar to find Polaris. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Probably so. But uh, we are expecting Polaris out any day now, and this is going to be GSA's small business IT and IT services GWAC. And as I mentioned, it's going to be uh, women-owned small businesses, hub zones, better-owned small businesses, and then there's going to be a portion of the contract for just small businesses that don't have an additional socioeconomic designation. Yeah, about uh, time. Right. It is about time. Uh, you know, This is, of course, the phoenix rising from the flame of what had been the Alliant 2 small business contract, highly anticipated, uh, I think, by customer agencies and certainly in industry. So uh, we uh, hopefully will get the RFPs out. And I know that companies are ready to bid. They've had their teams together. Uh, many of them have been following this process for well over a year. So uh, hopefully GSA will launch that. I actually have a lot of confidence in this part of GSA. I have a lot of confidence in most parts of GSA. Let me just edit that. <laughs> uh, but I, I, what I mean by that is, I, I, you know, they're not going to be able to protect themselves against protests. But I think what they're trying to do, Mark, is protect themselves against successful protests so that anything that does happen can be quickly dealt with and will not cause significant delays in program implementation. Uh, and I certainly hope that's the case. Look, uh, we talked about protests before, and I know I think I think protests have a place in government acquisition. I absolutely do. But I also think that shouldn't be uh, in the primary place where protests get to determine the success or failure of an entire program. So uh, expect Polaris out any day now. Uh, and if you're one of those hub zone or service disabled veteran businesses that are looking for this, it probably will be in March for you. But we'll get the ball rolling. I'm looking forward to it. Let's go to the Services Mac. Services Mac is another story. This would be the follow-on to GSA's successful OASIS contract, Mark. The <clears throat> OASIS contract has been very successful uh, in the services realm. It's been a very good foil to the GSA professional services schedule. GSA has been working on this for quite some time. Uh, late December, they put out a draft Section C uh, on their Interact site uh, for comments to industry. That was you know, basically the scope of the contract. Uh, what was notable about that is GSA added two new domains to the uh, scope of what the services back contract could entail, and they weren't small domains either. Uh, and that really caught industry's attention. 
for a couple of reasons, Mark, one of which is now you've got all these domains that are very diverse. Does GSA have the ability to manage all of them well? Uh, will it be able to manage all of them well? Some of these services like intelligence services are highly specialized and require some specialized knowledge, uh, not just to execute, but to get awarded under a contract vehicle. So there's some concern there. There's also some concern that up until now, GSA has been talking about doing uh, the services Mac as a unified contract, i.e. not a an unrestricted with a small business companion, as they have done successfully on Oasis, making the services Mac potentially that much more unwieldy, Mark, uh, with thousands of companies on one contract. And one of the things I've tried to point out to GSA is, look, that approach would have really harmed your Alliant program if you had gone with the unified approach for Alliant because of all the protests you've got. And it absolutely has harmed NITAC, as we just discussed in the last segment, because they took a unified approach to CIOSP4, hoping that GSA will come and do a uh, revise that strategy, do a small business companion and an unrestricted. I think contractors would like to see it, but more importantly, Mark, I think customer agencies would like to see it so that they can find those small businesses they want to use for appropriately scoped programs. Uh, GSA is supposed to have the RFP finished up by the end of this calendar year uh, with Uh, maybe sending it out for actual bids at the beginning of 2023. I know there's a lot of work left to be done, a lot of discussions to be had uh, with industry, with customers, and even internally inside GSA so that they end up with a contract that is structured in such a way that people will feel comfortable using it as a customer and comfortable bidding on it as a contract. Yeah, I mean, both of us have had conversations with the program managers of most of the GWACs, you with all of them, but me with a lot of them. And everyone I've spoken with has always had wonderful things to say about the small business separate component. And I don't understand why uh, this trend to unified even occurred. I don't want to go there. I have one other contract, though, I want to talk about, and that is Alliant 3. Well, uh, if you liked Alliant 2, Mark, which agencies have because they've used it extensively, you may love Alliant 3. Uh, GSA is just starting work right now on creating uh, an Alliant 3 contract. This would be their main uh, IT, IT services GWAC contract. They're looking at doing this early because Alliant 2 has been popular simultaneously, Mark. The agency is also looking to increase the contract ceiling on Alliant 2. No danger. I want to emphasize there's plenty of cap space left under Alliant 2 right now. GSA is trying to stay ahead of the game, though, to make sure it stays that way so that Alliant 2 has plenty of room on it uh, for projects while they put Alliant 3 together, perhaps on a slightly accelerated time frame. Uh, this would be for larger businesses, although it would certainly be open to smaller businesses. It would be a unified contract. Uh, but that's, you know, Polaris is kind of seen as the small business companion. 
uh, to it. Uh, and they have different running dates. So if you've got a Polaris or if you get a Polaris, there may not be such a need to pursue an Alliant 3 uh, unless you've got something really uh, in scope or an urgent and compelling need to do so. Uh, but I'm excited about this. I think GSA is excited about it, Mark, because uh, Alliance serves uh, a substantial swath of customers well, uh, particularly for very complex high-end solutions. You see just some very large dollar orders going through uh, this contract. So it means that it's flexible. It means that agencies have a comfort level, not just with the contract, but with GSA's ability to properly manage it and manage the contractors that are on it. So there is uh, some assurance that the companies that are on this contract can do what they say they can do. Uh, hopefully that stays the same for the Alliant 3 framework. Uh, boy, if there's ever a testament for if it ain't don't broke, don't fix it, uh, this is one of those times. So uh, if you're a contractor, look for GSA to be reaching out to you relatively soon to have some discussions about what you might think an Alliant 3 would look like. Uh, if you're a customer agency, GSA will probably be reaching out to you as well. They want to keep this as a centerpiece program, and I hope they succeed. You and me both. I, you know, I, I'm a fan of all of the vehicles that, that we've discussed today, even though it may have seemed like I'm I'm not. I, I am. I love the NITAC vehicles, and I think GSA has done a bang-up job, you know, with the previous alliance with Oasis. So I'm hoping the Services Mac is as successful as Oasis was. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to Polaris. Right. Well, there's a lot of excitement about what GSA is doing, uh, and, and hats off to their uh, management team uh, in both the IT and services categories for taking the initiative to launch these vehicles to meet future needs. I think it bodes well for the future of efficient acquisition and hopefully bodes well for the future of the agency now, my caveat to that is you got to have to make sure that your program actually meets the needs of your customers. It's not a Kevin Costner film, Mark. If you don't build it right, they won't come. So you make sure that you build it right, whether it's in Iowa, Auburn, Washington, or Washington, D.C. There you go. Larry, thanks so much for joining me today, man. You'll be back soon. Mark, thanks very much, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity. Larry Allen, allenfederal.com, and find him on LinkedIn. This is not my day job. I do advise companies on marketing to the government. I focus, though, on social selling, uh, building that subject matter expert platform, leveraging content, and all of it revolves around LinkedIn. If you're not fully utilizing LinkedIn, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. So give me a call. Drop me a line at markamtower at gmail.com. And Thank you for listening to Amtower Off-Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off-Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. There are a million reasons e-commerce shoppers don't buy. In fact, 97% abandon their first store visit. 
AdRoll retargeting keeps your brand on their mind, so they come back to buy. Visit AdRoll.com to start retargeting today. Your story. It lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.